Good day, wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio, for Friday, March 14th. 2014 this week episode 319 comes to you from studio d in central city pennsylvania my name is radio joe hughes here with me in the studios and at the controls is jessica lawson hello everyone back in the studio at mckee's rocks is the z-man cliff zlotnick hey joe uh dr Wow will be joining us as will pete consigli for the roundup today's segments and segments include an interview on the s500 and s520 we've got millie washington and we will soon have Howard Wolf as soon as I help him get on the line. Today's segments also include the halftime with an unfortunate announcement. And, of course, our roundup. Before we get started, let's thank our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at clean, C-L-E-A-N-F-A-X.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. Okay, everybody knows to listen to the show, go to iaqradio.com. You can either stream direct from our website or follow the link that says go to show where you can either stream or download shows. You can also get our shows from iTunes under the podcast section. Don't forget, we also have continuing education credits available. Just email me at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. And last but not least, please visit that IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Looks like we've got all our guests on now. Today's guests are Mr. Howard Wolf. Howard has been involved with the cleaning and restoration industry since 1984. He's got an extensive disaster and large project experience with a particular expertise in institutional, industrial, and hospitality facilities. In 2001, he started the HW3 Group, a firm committed to serving the restoration industry in the areas of investigation, research, marketing, operations, field management, and project management. We were talking a little earlier today, and he he helps as a uh, kind of a, a referee almost for building owners and, and sometimes uh, remediation contractors in, in large loss projects. Um, between 2002 and 2004, he sold the other contracting businesses he had, kept the consulting business, and started an education and technical support institution, and that was merged to become the Commercial Drying and Restoration Institute in 2009. Currently, he is the Standards Committee Chairman for the S-500 4th Edition and also the Chairman of IICRC Standards. We also have Millie Washington back this week. Happy to have Millie back. She has been the Institute of Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Standards Director since June of 2011. So Millie's staff, so folks that don't realize that she's the Standards Director, she's staffed with the IICRC, and Howard is on as the uh, chairman of the committee itself and the chairman of the standards body. Um, her focus has been to streamline the standards development process and strategy at the IICRC, and she's worked extensively with the American National Standards Institute on approval of and revisions to the ANSI IICRC standards. 
She previously focused her work as the role of manager of standards and guidelines for the American Industrial Hygiene Association, where she oversaw three ANSI accredited standards and committees that developed 20 ANSI standards for the occupational safety and health profession. We have some music for our guests. I'm here. Good morning, gentlemen. Good afternoon now, gentlemen. Good afternoon. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. Millie, do we have you on the line? Absolutely. Hi, Joe. Hi, Cliff. Howie. Good afternoon, officially, now on the East Coast. Thanks for joining us, both of you. Thank you very much. Millie, let's start with you real quick. Um, I, I think one of the things we want to get straight up front is what are the major challenges to creating these industry standards? It seems like it takes forever to get a standard. And then, you know, once you do get it, revising it also seems to take forever. Why, why is that? That's a really good question. Um, I, I often say that it takes eternal optimists to work on standards because of the time involved and, the, you know, just the energy involved with, with a long-standing process of developing and revising standards. Um, it, you know, it's a double-edged sword. It's, um, on the one hand, you know, we have a credible document at the end because we're making sure that uh, the process that we follow is open and transparent. We're making sure that we invite anyone that's interested to participate either, you know, on a consensus body as a committee member or during public review. So th- while all of that's wonderful because we get, you know, this tremendous input from so many industry stakeholders, the flip side of that is, you know, with, for example, S500, we each time we put the standard out for public review, we've received over 700 um, unique comments. And what that does is it just prolongs the process because we want to make sure that we've given, you know, enough time and consideration to each and every comment submitted by each commenter. And it just kind of prolongs the process. Um, in addition, when uh, we have any substantive changes made to a standard, we have to put it out for public review and consensus body approval ballot. So in other words, each time there's a substantial change made to the standard, it has to go through that approval process again. So there's no telling if a standard will go through it once or twice or thrice, depending on the complexity of comments that we receive. Um, so I think that's definitely the most challenging part. You know, for me as staff, it's not nearly as challenging as those who are participating as volunteer members and giving of their time and uh, their expertise on a sometimes seemingly endless process. But, um, you know, the end result is well worth um, the frustration of working on it sometimes. Well, toward the end, you mentioned that you know, every time there are substantial sub- substantive changes, it goes out for public review again. I, I guess that's where we're at with both the S-500, the standard for professional water damage, and also the S-520, the standard for professional mold remediation. Um, Howie, can you uh, let us know where where we're at? Is that accurate? They're both coming back out again. Will this be a full review again, or is this um, some kind of a, a hybrid? Well, uh, let's start with let's start with 500. 500 
just uh, completed its second round of public review, and and the committee, um, you know, I got to tell you that that S five hundred committee, that's like that's like running the Iditarod. Those guys are just just absolutely uh, committed and and are just hammering right now because uh, they're over halfway through the second round of public review comments, uh, which there were quite a few of them. Um, and they're preparing for a uh, third public review. Um, the third public review, um, I, at this point, uh, we're not uh, sure, but uh, at this point it looks like the third public review will go through a, a slightly different process that Millie can elaborate on, but that, because the, the number of substantive changes aren't there like they were in the uh, first public review. Um, regarding 520, 520 went through its first public review. Um, they are working their way, kind of slugging their way through those comments um, uh, because uh, the first time through public review, there's a, a lot more, um, a lot more to think about, a lot more to chew on, and um, they want to make sure that you know they they get it right, so to speak, that they listen to the peers and the public that are commenting as well as preserving the integrity of the consensus within the committee. So they're, they're, they're working their way through it right now. And, and uh, um, I would think that that one probably would be later on this year that they are going to be ready for the second public review. Uh, 500 will probably be ready late spring for the third round of public review. I see. And Millie, do you want to comment on the, the third round of public review for S-500? Sure. And this is one of the nuances of the ANSI process. Um, You know, typically the public review period is 45 days, and that's how we've done it for the last few years now, 45 days public review. The same 45 days, you know, the committee votes to approve it as well. Um, There is one um, difference, and that is with the S-500 and any of our standards for that matter, if the um, the number of changes can be limited to five pages or under, and we're not sure that that will be the case, but it looks like it might be. Um, and as long as that's the case, where it's under five pages, then and we can you know, consolidate those changes to one document, that's a five-page document, um, then we can do a 30-day public review instead of the typical 45-day public review. So that's something we're considering. It's going to depend on, you know, once we're done with public review comments, um, the volume of the changes, uh, the substantive changes made to the standards. So, um, in in um, in all probability, we will do a 30-day third round of public review for S500. And oh, I want to clarify that S520 will be coming out for the second round, um, and um, S500, a water damage standard, will be coming out for the third round. Okay, thank you for that, correcting me there. Now, let me get a little clarification, then I want to turn it over to Cliff. When you say five pages, is that like one change on five different pages or five full pages of changed text? Um, it's Yeah, it would be a collection of changes throughout the standard, that, as long as it can fit on five Microsoft Word. Um, document pages, then that's that's the criteria that ANSI uses. And the reason for that is that 
um, you know, when we put out a standard for public review, the notification, the required notification goes out through ANSI Standards Action Publication. It's a it's basically um, um, an online publication that comes out every Friday, and it announces all the standards that are available for public review, who you can get it from, and what the cost is, etc. Um, so the rationale for that five pages is that if it's limited to five pages, they will include those five pages in the ANSI Standards Action Publication and say, you know, this is all of the substantive changes that IICRC is proposing. You have 30 days, here's all of the changes, you know, and then from, for, for the full document, click here. Um, so we've not done that before because our changes have been um, more, uh, but um, with 500, it looks like it'll be under five pages. So, um, you know, and, and, and those specific changes would also be, um, you know, in all of our media press releases, ICRC website, so we would um, consolidate the changes. Yeah, and just just as a clarification, Joe, not all of the changes are have to fit within those five pages. Just substantive changes—that's the key right. word. And substantive okay. changes would change the process or the way that a procedure is followed, or change the way that the restorer does work. If it's if it's a change just for clarity, or a change for definition or a change for uh, just editing purposes to make something read smoother or proper syntax, those changes would not be included on those five pages. It's just the, uh, essentially, in layman's terms, it's the, the sh it's the trigger words, the shall, the shoulds, and some of the recommendeds. And that would primarily be in the standard portion, not the reference document? Correct. Or both? That's okay. correct. Well, it, for 500, it would be whatever's in the reference document. 500 is still under our old procedures, and so 500, the it would just be the standard, but that same language is in the reference document. 500 was not split like uh, 520 will be. 520 is going to be split between the reference guide and the standard, so the standard will be the only thing going through the... Um, will, will be the and only the document going review. through... The public review, correct. Yeah, not the uh, reference guide. All right. Cliff, I'm sorry. Let me turn it over to you. No, okay. Um, hey, Howie. Hey. Um, can you tell us how the IICRC determines whether or not a standard will be prescriptive type or performance-based? Well, the, the way that the IICRC, the IICRC has a pretty standardized policy on how they write all of their standards, and all of the standards are really procedural documents. They're 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 so they would be more of a uh, they're almost a hybrid. They're not a strict prescriptive, but they're not a strict performance based document. I mean, they're they are uh, procedural documents that have performance criteria within them. Um, the prescriptive side of it would be the standard of care issues, the shells and the shoulds. Given our industry, you know, we've kind of got a um, an abnormal industry in the fact that it's not heavily regulated by a particular agency. So the prescriptive side of it isn't near as heavy as it would be in other industries, whereas uh, so it allows us to work more on a performance basis rather than a prescriptive basis. Okay, thank you. Could you comment on S500 in terms of the 
sections that are getting the most comments and what sort of uh, substantive changes are, are being made in S500 based on those comments? Well, 500, um, for the most part, there's only one uh, section that's that's really drawing a lot of attention, and a lot of that had a, uh, a lot to do with some hype that may or may not have been the most uh, reliable information. Um, the That section is 13.5.7.1 in the standard, and... Uh, uh, which deals with uh, air movement and calculating and, and deciding on air movement on a project. The the section that was uh, heavily commented upon uh, in that part of the document uh, dealt with um, making a decision on whether or not to reduce the number of air movers in a specific situation, that being a class four situation um, and the class four situation uh, for those that understand what class four is the, the types of materials that are involved in a class four loss usually are materials that require a higher vapor pressure differential uh, and more energy in the material in order to extract that moisture out so the committee um, and, and I think appropriately so, there's enough research available to say that a lot of air movement is not necessarily practical. However, if you're reducing air movement, it is in lieu of adding energy, whether it be creating a greater vapor pressure differential or adding heat. Unfortunately, either the committee did not communicate that well enough or the, some of the readers that started the hype did not uh, so we're reviewing that for clarity um, but the position that the committee is taking at this point isn't really changing um, there's also a rumor going around that that, that the, the calculation is changing um, uh, away from 10 to 16 linear feet of, of uh, surface in lieu of a square footage calculation, and that that's partially true. It, it's not uh, uh, what the committee has decided, and again, I think it's a clarity issue. The 10 to 16 lineal feet, as well as the square footage, are, are guidance parameters for determining the number of air movers. Uh, the, the, it, 10 to 16 lineal feet worked great for for in place drying for uh, for a limited segment uh, of what we do, um, but for example, what I do primarily in the commercial side, 10 to 16 linear feet really does no good uh, when you have a ballroom with a lot of open carpeted area, a lot of square footage. You need a, a calculation that supports being able to handle a, a large carpet field rather than just along some walls in, in a room that uh, ambient, uh, um, the ambient conditions can take care of the rest in the middle of the room because of the vortex between itself. So the clarity was, was being brought in in order to allow the restorer the flexibility to calculate. Either way, 
in order to address the situation they have at hand. And I admit that that may not, we went back and looked at it, it may have been as clear as it could have been. And so the committee is working on making that clearer. And, and But the 10 to 16 linear feet is not being dropped from the document. It never was dropped from the document. It will not be dropped from the document. It is still a credible calculation. We were just adding other parameters to make a proper assessment and actually giving the restorer more flexibility and power to make a decision as a professional. Okay. Uh, thank you. Um, can I have follow up on that real quick, Cliff? Go ahead, Joe. Not a restorer. I mean, I you know I I know a little bit about this. What is that original ten to sixteen linear feet based on? Is that based original, on a, you know, some kind of science? I'm I'm just curious about that. Yeah, the original ten to sixteen linear feet. Uh, the 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 upper range of of ten and the lower range of of sixteen was based on. Uh, at the time, and this would have been when we originally uh, worked on this from the standard side of it, it, it was a practice that was a slightly different calculation that was in a certification course in the Applied Structural Drying Certification course. When we researched it further to put it into the standard, we, we changed the, the distances a little bit because we went based on the performance basis of a centrifugal air mover versus an axial air mover, and, and if in the correct position and the correct spot off the wall in order to be able to maintain 1.9 uh, uh, foot-pounds per second uh, along the surface. It, it, it Most uh, air movers' performance uh, were within that distance. And so that that's the basis, that's the basis for it. And again, like I said, that works great for drying out a wall that doesn't do us much good for other materials or other surfaces. Okay, okay. Howie, I've got a question in, in terms of the equipment recommendations. You know, I understand that many people that do water damage restoration have been to training courses, and, and what they do is they segregate the wet area. They may use the term create a drying chamber. Uh, they size the equipment based on the uh, S500 document recommendations and you know, they can get the job done that way. In many other situations, uh, it seems that the restorer on site has the opportunity to take advantage of the large reservoir of dry air and dry materials in the rest of, in the rest of a building. And I don't really see any provision in the document that you know that takes advantage of that because if you know you've got a small wet area and a large dry building uh you know by allowing the areas to, to equalize in terms of temperature and moisture and so on and so forth you can significantly reduce the amount of equipment necessary i i, I agree with you on that and the uh i agree with you on, on the on the theory there is uh provisions during the inspection it, the, the the problem is is the way the document is set up and it's not a problem the document is set up in a logical flow and before you get to the equipment calculation area which is in section 13 you have to first go through section 
believe it's 10 or 11, which is inspections, which is to determine whether drying is even necessary. And and what you're discussing, and, and I wholeheartedly agree with you, that restorers don't necessarily take advantage of the the gifts that God created, so to speak. I mean, where I live in, in Wisconsin in the wintertime, the grains in the in the outside air are so low, all I have to do is open up the windows and let the furnace kick in, and, and, and I can dry something out in no time at all. You know, it used to be called burping the, the building. You know, I mean, you know, restorers use that technique for years before the advance of modern technology. So, I mean, that that that's that's definitely a, a viable option. As far as enforcement goes, or as far as restorers taking liberty. Uh, and using the document to their full advantage that unfortunately that's something that uh, is not necessarily that's not something that can necessarily be controlled by standard that that's really something that has to be controlled in my opinion it has to be controlled within the market um, I, the the standard in my opinion allows for um, not allows for but does require the restorer to make a decision whether drying is even necessary first and then when it is necessary then here's the calculations based on the materials and the degree of saturation and the conditions yeah but are those degrees of saturation and conditions applicable when there's just a small area uh, that's wet in a big building and there's a lot of adjacent you know dry area and if you just you know, allow things to equalize on the inside of the building, um, you know, that could reduce the amount of equipment. It, it it definitely can. Now, keep in mind, the calculations are not a standard of care either. It does it does say, and, and, and I, I agree that there is some additional clarity that could probably be made within that section, structural restoration, section the problem we have is that within the consensus body we haven't been able to achieve consensus on how to convey that and and so the language that's there is pretty much spread out you have to take what's in the inspection section which is to determine whether training is necessary based on all of the parameters and then when you're going through the procedural section within section 15, you then make the determination as to whether you're going to dehumidify or ventilate. And, and really what we're talking about is physical testing pressure is described or partially described in the ventilation portion of it, meaning that you're, you're exhausting moist air to the outside or exhausting it to affected portion because they handle it. Then the next section below that is is the section that talks about dehumidifier calcs. A lot of people just skip right to the dehumidifier calcs because they want to use the equipment they just bought. And that, unfortunately, there's not much you can do within the standard to govern that. Okay. You know, you, you introduced the term consensus body, and uh, in front of me I've got a copy of the consensus body roster for S500. And next to the people's names are the words producer, user, or general interest. Could either you or Millie define what those terms are? 
I'll let, uh, I'll let Millie make the definitions, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, the producer user general interest um, interest categories are, uh, are, you know, the way of dividing up the committee um, so that uh, there is a balance of different sides on the committee. Um, we have producers, meaning, and this is a very generic definition that applies to all of our standards. It's not specific to 500. Um, but a producer would be uh, any person or organization or entity that's producing uh, or manufacturing or supplying the goods and services uh, covered by the standard. So in this case, it would be the services covered by the standard. Um, similarly, a user would be someone um, that's using the service, in this case, water damage restoration, um, rather than producing or selling them. And um, a general interest interest category would be um, an entity that is either directly or materially affected um, or just interested in the services of the standard but is not either a producer or um, a user of the services. So that's kind of how, and that's those are the three basic um, distinctions um, that ANSI recommends and that we use for our standards. Um, you know, there are others that use more, but we use these three, and um, I'd say for 500 and 520, both standards, we have um, a good balance. Um, and by balance, what I mean is um, ANSI has a requirement that every consensus body or you know, the group of members, basically a committee that's working on developing or revising a standard should have a balance of these interest categories. And by balance, what is meant um, is different for different standards. If it's a safety standard, which IICRC standards are not, but, you know, just for reference, if it's a safety standard, then the requirement for balance would be... Um, pretty steady at one-third, 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 depending on how many interest categories you have. If you had four, it would be 25%. Okay. Uh, well, when I look at the names that are on the S500 consensus body roster, number one, uh, in terms of interest category, who assigned that category to the name? Did the person on the consensus body make that selection themselves? Yeah, it's a two-pronged uh, process. Um, initially, when someone submits an application form, they are asked to self-select their interest category, and so they do that, you know. And sometimes there's confusion because, you know, am I a producer, am I a user, and how is it defined, and where do I fall in, and maybe I'm a little bit of both, and so where do I place myself? So, you know, there is some of that. Um, but initially, application forms do ask for self-selection, uh, once the application forms are reviewed, um, typically the standards um, chair, Howie, as well as the committee chair uh, would review um, and determine if the applicant has um, selected the interest category accurately as per our definition. And if not, then you know we'll typically have some back and forth discussion about what is the best fit. Um, and especially if someone fits in one or more categories, then for a particular standard, what is the best fit? Um, and, 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 I, and I hadn't finished, but for our standards, the requirement for balance essentially is a little bit less stringent. It is that no single interest category should 
uh, represent more than 50%. Um, so producer, user, general interest, none of them should be more than 50% of the committee's makeup. Does that okay. answer you? Uh, yeah, but I'm still, I'm, yeah. still, I'm still kind of troubled by it. Okay, I've known personally every person on there for 10 years or more, you know, some 20. So I have a pretty good idea on who they are, where they work, what they do. I also know that among the IICRC's constituency, there are 60,000 people uh, that, that hold certifications. Many of these folks, uh, and, and the most, uh, the largest category for certification was water damage restoration. When I look at this consensus body roster, I really don't see strong contractor representation on it. You know, I see strong consultant representation. I see strong equipment uh, manufacturing uh, representation. But I, uh, you know, I see ed strong educational uh, representation. But what I do is I, I see very, very weak um, contractor representation, and it just to me seems to be out of balance. Well, I'll say two things to that. One is, you know, we when we put out a call for members when a new committee is being formed, it's, you know, it's exactly that. Anyone that's interested can submit an application. Um, and uh, speaking from my own experience at IICRC over the last two and a half years now, we've not turned anyone down who has applied. And so it's not a case, with, you know, 500 was formed before my time. And so how we may be able to speak to that better because he was chair at the time. Um, but I know that at least in the last almost three years, we've not turned anybody down. So, you know, the idea of participating in standards um, hopefully is gaining um, more relevance, more momentum, more acceptability, because when you participate, obviously you have you know, a say, uh, and you contribute towards what's in the standard. And so that's something we're continuously looking to improve um, and to have more participation on our standards. Of course, you know, through the public review process, people can, and sometimes not everybody wants to be involved, you know, as we talked in the beginning, in a five-year process, and they just want to come in and comment during public review, and that's fine. We would definitely like to see a wider representation on all of our committees. And we continue to push for that, but we can only go with the applications that are submitted. I understand. Howie, I would like you to comment on the roster being uh, biased. Could you do that? Look, we lost Howie for a moment, but he is back, so I don't know if you hold the whole, heard the whole conversation. Howie, um, just went over the roster and the categories. Maybe you could comment on the, on the uh, makeup. Oh, we're having some trouble with Howie's reception here. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I, it seemed that he was breaking up. I, I was having difficulty hearing him as well. Yeah. Is, is he on a cell phone, Joe? It's quite possible, yes. That's what we think. So we just lost him again. Maybe he'll get a better reception. What we're going to do is we're going to break for halftime. Now let's do that, that Joe. Howard, Howard Wolf and Millie Washington. Great stuff. Thank you, Millie. Hang in there. Maybe you ought to hold down the fort a little bit for us.
for those of you that know me uh, or know me well, you know that my favorite movie is The Godfather. And there's a famous scene in The Godfather movie where one of the characters, Hyman Roth, says to Michael Corleone, Michael, this is the business that we've chosen. Some businesses have inherent hazards and risks. Ray D. Jones, 59, of Washington, Pennsylvania, died Monday, March 10, 2014, in Monongahela Valley Hospital as a result of injuries sustained in a fall through the roof of a building that he was inspecting. Ray was a graduate of Vail Tech's National Residential Estimating Program and became a certified restorer graduating in the first formal certified restorers class. In 1981, he started Firedex of Washington as a franchise, an innovator in realization that the strong role that franchising would play in the future in disaster repair, he later bought the franchise and became a licensee. Ray realized the value and importance of industry education, uh, graduating in the first class of certified restorers. Uh, while commonplace today, Ray was the first person I knew who invested a large sum of money in a water-damaged box van. This was fitted with truck-mounted extraction equipment and storage racks for drying equipment. He purchased it from Bob Bonwell, Advantage Marketing in Indianapolis, who innovated this box truck water damage emergency response vehicle concept. Firedex was the first full-service restoration company in western Pennsylvania. In 1987, Ray was one of three partners and president of HJM Enterprises doing business as Firedex of Pittsburgh. Following the sale of Firedex of Washington to Enricon LLC of Michigan, he remained as general manager at its Houston office. Most recently, he was owner of RDJ Consulting LLC and co-owner of Jones & Sons Rentals LLC. Ray Jones was serving on Chartier's Township Planning Commission at the time of his death. He was a former member of the Chartier's Township Zoning Hearing Board, was a past volunteer for Washington City Mission, and served as a national volunteer staff manager for Promise Keepers in Denver, Colorado from 1994 to 2001. He enjoyed shooting sports, hunting golf, and spending time with family and friends riding side-by-side -side ATVs. Uh, on May 3, 1975, he married Janice Burnett, who survives him, and he has two sons, Michael and Brian, and three grandchildren. Ray was a loyal and longtime member of the Restoration Industry Association, an organization that was very near and dear to him. To raise many friends and colleagues in the cleaning and restoration industry, a great way to remember Ray is by making a donation in his honor to the Restoration Industry Legal Fund, which is taking action to invalidate patents related to heat drying that have negatively affected its members and the entire industry. To donate and learn more about RIA and the Restoration Industry Legal Fund, go to their website, which is restorationindustry.org, or you can call them at 800-272-7012. Thanks to our association sponsors,
the Indoor Air Quality Association, IAQA, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at www.iaqa.org. And thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanclenfax.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. Howard, we have you back on the line. Yes, we do. Okay, great. We're having some trouble. Is that, well, we'll just keep going and do the best we can. Then we're going to go to round up early and, and try and get some uh, other people's voices in here. I'm just curious, um, real quick, on the S520. Did you have a lot of uh, comments on the S520, and where was the big emphasis with respect to the S520 comments? Yeah. Primarily one issue, and that's uh, obviously the hot topic the line in particular. Um, and where remediators as far as, uh, you know what, uh, Howard, we're still having technical problems with your phone and having a real hard time hearing you. I'm not sure if you're in a bad reception area or, um, but let's do this, Cliff. Why don't you want to, you want to turn it over and, and go to the roundup? Um, hang on a second. Let me see if I've got anything else that, um, Millie, maybe you would know. Yeah, uh, that we can it? talk to you know, to Millie about. Uh, Millie, um, you know, with yeah. your long-time experience with standards, um, you know, one of the things that IICRC standards have is a reference guide, which is at the end of the standard. Is this something that's common in standards? Is it something that's required, or is it something that's optional? Could you comment on that? Absolutely. Um, that was one of the, my first observations when I started with IICRC was this, you know, the reference guide at the end of the standard. It is um, actually not done by any other standards developing organizations. It's unique to IICRC. It is um, certainly not an ANSI requirement. Um, ANSI only deals with standards, not with reference guides, you know, not with any companion documents of any kind. Um, and we have modified our standards policy um, to separate out the standard from the reference guide. And that will happen with S520 will be the first standard to go through that. Uh, 500, as Howie mentioned earlier, will still be published as standard and reference guide one document. 
The reason being that it was already uh, far ahead in the revision process when we made that change to our policy. So all you know, relatively new standards that are being either developed or revised will be done um, with the, the reference guide being uh, developed and published as an IICRC document and the standard being published as the ANSI IICRC standard. So there will be that distinction. Um, and um, you know, I think probably uh, S520 would be the first one to be published like that. S100, when the revision comes out, will be published separate, standard and reference guide. Um, it was just, um, in my opinion, uh, complicating the process more than we needed to, more than is required from ANSI, more than anybody else does. And so it was just a logical uh, progression for our standards development. So we're definitely headed in that direction. No, I, I think it makes sense. And, and the reason that I mentioned is many people that buy the document um, aren't necessarily that familiar with it. And, uh, you know, they, they take as gospel everything that's in it. Right. And I, I just think it's a very, very good move that we're going to separate those in the future. Right. Back to you. I, I happen to agree with that sentiment. Yeah, good. Howie, that's that's great. You you sounded really good on that one. Um, I, I was wondering if there's anything you'd like to add with respect to the changes to the S520, where the main focus has been before we move on to our roundup. Well, I think in regards to the S520, I think that uh, the the key thing to understand is that we can't we can't walk everything back at once if there is a change to be made um, and. And what I mean by that is with 520, given the nature of the document, it is a document that many, uh, most of the contractors and remediators insurance policies, their very, their contractors liability coverage or pollution liability coverage are all now steeped in, in this document. So if if the document takes a hard turn to the right, we have to be careful not to uh, leave the remediator exposed by not having any coverage because their coverage doesn't keep up with the document. So, you know, what this, I would say what to expect out of this coming revision is uh, modifications for clarity, modifications for, to, to basically get it as an ANSI accredited document again, and then along with uh, a, a more thorough research on drawing that line between the IEP and the remediator is going to take place immediately in the next revision. Millie and I plan on putting S520 right back into revision immediately after publication of this round. Well, that's good news. All right, let's turn it over to is Cliff going to round up. Yes, Joe. Go to the roundup. We've got a couple guests coming in. Move them on, hit them up, hit them up. Move them on, move them on, hit them up. Go high. Cut them out, hide them in, hide them in, let them out. Cut them out, try them in, throw
let's let's go to the roundup here. We're going to bring on Pete Consigli, Dr. Dietrich Wow, get clipping last call a uh, last uh a uh, last question. I, I gotta give you one of these comments, though, Howard, because it's. I just think it's. Uh, I don't know. I think it's. It, it's somewhat of a consensus, uh, with, at least with a, a portion of the uh, people that follow the S five twenty. Basically, saying that the, you know, the coverage excuse doesn't make it. Um, that you know, we got to either follow the science or, or learn about it in court. Is what one of the listeners is saying. And I, you know, I think. I understand your position, um, and I do understand the frustration of people out in the field trying to deal with that. Will you clarify a little bit with respect to when people have to bring in an IEP and what they do when the client doesn't want to pay for an IEP? Um, you're, you're asking you're asking me to, to, to clarify when, I mean, that's really a, a standard, that, that, that's not really a, a standard question. That's really more of a business practice question when you're talking about an issue of payment. Um, you know, the, who is for what is something for people, as you said, the science or follow the practice yeah, in, in the industry that really should be irrespective of the payment or who's paying the bill that um, one of the things that I feel very strongly about is that while I do have to be conscious and while the committees do have to be conscious of, you know, the fact that there are other influences, again, we're a different type of industry. We don't work a standard uh, for manufacturing has a nice clean line. We actually have, a, uh, a procedural standard that is written on a performance, primarily a performance basis that has no real, does have a clearly defined end user, but the practical end of it, the, the, the business end of it is not clearly defined because many times that person paying the bill is a third party. Okay. Which adds a, some complexity to the situation. Now, it's convenient for me to say that we'll do it, you know, that the standard is written irrespective of that, but that's a little bit disingenuous. You do have to, obviously, they are part of the process, and they do have to be considered. Insurance, The insurance industry has to be considered, um, and the owner's pocketbooks have to be considered. So when an adjuster says they don't want to pay it or an owner says they don't want to pay it, then that's a of that the remediator then has to take upon themselves as a business decision to decide whether they're going to um, provide their 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 own IEP or whether they are going to uh, walk away from the job or whether they're going to move forward with without it um, and and that's uh, that, those are business decisions that the document is not a law it's not a regulation the standards are standards, and they are standards of care. And if there is a complexity or a limitation or a complication that requires you to deviate from the standard, again, as long as it's communicated and agreed upon by all parties and is 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 adequately documented that this is the direction that everybody seems uh, to go, the document does allow for those deviations. Exactly. And well, that's my. I guess my point is that I think it could be clear within the standard that it does allow for those deviations as long as you do the things that you you pointed out. I appreciate you taking it on and, and, and even discussing the, the question and the answer. The other thing, 
I want to clarify for listeners before we go is we talked uh, before the show, how you, and we talked about the third-party administrator um, issue out there and the problems that a lot of our restoration uh, people are having with third-party administrators, and, and you agreed that that was a, an issue that we should talk about, but maybe that we should talk about that later within, you know, with you coming back under your role as principal at HW3, um, I think I have that right, and uh, that, you know, it's probably not as appropriate for this show. So uh, we look forward to having you come on and talk a little bit about that because um, I think that is a very important topic for people. HW3 group, I had it right. Cliff, let me turn it over to you, and then we'll, we'll get uh, Pete in here for a moment. Yeah, um, this is, I guess, this is a toss-up question for either Millie or uh, Howie. The IICRC uses the same people to write the standard and also be the consensus body. Is this typical or atypical of other ANSI standards writing groups? Um, I can answer that. Um, the answer is it's very typical. That's exactly how it is. The consensus body is the group of people that writes the standards. So there is no, that's, that is, the, the, the group of people that writes the body is simply called the consensus body. So that's just how it is. Um, when we say standards committee, that's a totally different internal group. Um, and the standards committee at IICRC consists of the chairs and vice chairs of all of our consensus bodies, and they look at strategic policy type issues. Um, they're not involved in the writing of each standard other than being chair on each of those standards. Um, so the consensus body is really just the term defined for the committee that writes the standard. Um, and that's absolutely typical. That's how ANSI standards are written. And it's also the group that reviews public review comments and responds to them because that's the group that wrote the standard, and that is absolutely typical as well. So it's not um, you know, out of the ordinary in any way. Okay. One final comment. You know, what, what I would like to do, if possible, is you know, because Howie seemed to have a lot of technical difficulties with his phone and our ability to hear him and, and so on and so forth. Uh, if you and Howie would be uh, amenable to it, I think we'd like to have uh, another future show where we uh, continue the discussion. What do you think, Joe? Absolutely. Let's do it. Okay. Good. Absolutely. Right. I, I apologize. I got stuck in traffic and couldn't get back to the office in time. So uh, uh, that's what it is. Okay, great. Oh, I thought I was so worried it was something on our end, Howard. That, that, that's good. Okay, we'll we'll get this worked out. Let's bring in uh, let's bring in Pete Consigli, the the industry watchdog here, global watchdog. Pete, we have you on the line. Yeah, I'm here, guys. Hey, look, great discussion. I, th I think it's a good idea that to follow up because the subject is just so broad. And, you know, when you mentioned the thing about the TPAs there, um, it would seem to me that uh, one of the things that uh, um, you may want to have a show where you actually bring bring some of the TPAs on to, to, to interact into the dialogue because it is a different dynamic. Um, well, listen, uh, I think that, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm glad to see that the reference guide is going to be separated out from uh, the standards. That's something that I think a lot of people have advocated. It'll make it a lot easier probably for the users of the document. It, regarding the, the, the actual, um, the actual uh, um, the MIP groups that Millie had talked about, and I know that there's some flexibility in the ANSI essentials on that, it would seem that the contractors, it's tough to get contractors to participate in the process because they're so busy doing their work. 
but I think that perspective is, is important. And maybe one of the suggestions would be is when they don't apply to be on those committees that possibly uh, try to solicit some contractors to see where they c could have input. That's kind of a, you know one of the comments that I would have. But other than that, I mean, I, I think the discussion needs to carry on and, um, you know, good job. Well, thank you, Pete. And Howie, when, when we were discussing that, the committee makeup, you kind of broke up there and, and we lost you. I didn't know, I wanted to give you an opportunity if you, you desired to, to follow up on that. Well, sure. When, what, one of the things I was going to mention is, uh, you know, I know that if you look at the 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 committee makeup and the and the companies that they represent currently because we update the roster on a regular on a regular basis and let's take let's take our consensus body chair Mickey Lee for example who worked for uh, over thirty years for for Munters and and you know recently retired and retired during this revision process uh, I don't think anybody would dispute that that he has always represented the producer category. Um, my question to people that ask me, I always ask back a question. Does somebody who spent 30 years as a restorer, once he retires, does that make him any less qualified to represent that interest category? It, it, just because he's not in the field today, but he was in the, he's been in the field for 30 years and he has that wealth of knowledge, does that make him any less qualified to represent a producer or represent a restorer, you know, the thing is, is in many times when a, an ANSI document is written, you have, they may be a consultant, but they are usually people that have retired um, and have the time to represent that interest category. Um, take myself, for example, I owned a, I owned my own restoration company. I've been in the business for a very long time. I have a consulting company um, which allows me to stay in the in the field. I work in the field with restorers every day. As a matter of fact, the reason why I got stuck in traffic is I had to go pick up a desiccant for one of my clients to take to a project that we're working on. So, you know, I, I may be a consultant, but I am working with restorers and I am still active as a practicing restorer and as a practicing advocate for insureds for the for the end user uh on a daily basis so i think you know the the industry places or there are some people that the place and i don't want to you know call it a clip but i'm gonna because you're on the phone um the 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 there are times i think we place a little bit too much emphasis on the 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 word within the company they work for, for example, consulting, rather than the person themselves. And and you had mentioned that you knew a lot of us for a long time. And Cliff, you and I have known each other since right. we got in this industry in '84. So you know, I've always been out in the field, and I've always been an advocate uh, for you know for you know, because I've sold my company. I am now a consultant. But my advocacy has never changed, and I don't feel that I am any less qualified, and nor did the committee think I was any less qualified to represent the interest category I'm representing. Very good. Cliff, anything you'd like to follow up on before we bring in Dr. Weil? No, I think we can go to Dr. Weil. I, I do think we'd like to uh, invite you back. We'll send you a, uh, you know, a formal invite for a future show, and... Um, 
you know, what I may do is I'll, I'm going to write the blog, I'll send it to you, and, you know, maybe have you fill in some blanks or answer some questions if, if you're okay with that so that we can, uh, you know, publish something, uh, you know, for next week. But I do think, as Pete said, it's, it's a big issue. Uh, you know, there, there's still a bunch of questions that I think both Joe and I, you know, would like to get through. And unfortunately, we understand how technical difficulties can occur you know, when you rely on technology, it's happened to us in the past, and it just frustrates everybody. Hey, hey Joe, this is Pete. Before you guys go over to Dieter, can I just can I have one more minute, please, to comment on sure. something? Yeah. To. Listen, I um, I think that uh, here's one of the issues that I have after listening to, to Millie talk about the fact that the the consensus body and these drafting committees are essentially the same. I guess. The issue that I would ask to be addressed is, it seems that, how does the oversight work? I mean, I remember in the old days of the ISCRC standards, they used to have the certification council kind of served as a review body. That may or may not be appropriate anymore. But when you have the same group that's drafting it, that's also serving as the body, and maybe it's just semantics, I don't know, I, I suppose it's a check and balance. And then the one thing directly related to that that's been a thorn that a lot of people have talked about for a long time, and, and this is another technical ANSI question that maybe Millie could address, is how common is it that there are dissenting viewpoints that, that are published in standards? Because I know from my personal experience of dealing with IICRC standards in the 90s, there were some people who, wouldn't, when they were not allowed to basically put an opposing viewpoint that was documented as part of the process. They actually put a lot of work in, but they removed their name from the standards, and they didn't want to be associated. So if, if Millie or Howie could address that from an ANSI standpoint and or just from a cultural standpoint, the IICRC, that might be helpful. But other than that, you know, I, I think you guys uh, did a good job today, and I think I, 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 I agree wholeheartedly uh, with Cliff and Joe, that the, the the conversation should continue, and we should involve other stakeholders in the process. Anyway, thank you very much. All I can thank say, Joe, is this is not your father's Oldsmobile. <laughs> <laughs> we 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 uh, the, the the makeup, the policies, the procedures, the processes that we have in place today for standards resembles nothing of what you and I went through back in the nineties. It, it is yeah. a completely different process. I, I, I want to just add to that, too, if I may. You know, I can't speak for what was done in the past, but I can tell you that we have plenty of dissenting opinions. You know, it's just a course of action with standards development. It's just how it is. Um, all opinions are considered. Some are included, some are not, but that depends on the consensus body, which is it, the, the term is, you know, consensus body, but it really means committee that's writing the standard. Um, and, you know, it, it depends on information that's available. It depends on the sources that are cited um, and the validity of the um, dissenting opinion. Um, and um, just, you know, having been part of it for, you know, a couple of years now, I can tell you that there are plenty of dissenting opinions that do get included. And then there are others that don't, and that's, you know, within the uh, spectrum of the scope of the consensus body. Are there ever any, I think Pete was asking, I don't know that I, I know or I'm aware of any of these, are there ever any standards that do include like a, a note that, you know, hey, there's a, a body of people out here, by and knowledge, a dissenting opinion to this effect, Millie? Um, it's actually standard? 
No, I, for, you know, for ANSI standards, it's the public review process that ensures that anyone with any opinion agreeing or dissenting has an opportunity to comment, and their comments must be considered, they must be responded to. Um, you know, we keep meticulous track of every commenter's comments, and they get responses to it. Um, that was part of the problem with what uh, happened in the past. So. We're being very careful, and I can assure you that, you know, this is very much typical of ANSI standards. We're not doing anything um, that's um, rogue in any way. Um, what's atypical is is the interest and the passion, um, and that's a really good thing. I mean, just to get, you know, people to comment, 700-plus comments on a given standard, that's, that's, that's great, and that's kind of unique to this industry. Uh, we got to give credit where credit's due, Millie. You've done a great job, and I think the the current board, and maybe some of the immediate past people, did a good job. I mean, if I recall correctly, in 2006, Howard, when the standard came out as an ANSI standard, if I recall correctly, there was not one comment. Is that accurate? Howie. Howie. I think we've lost. I think he's saying that's not entirely accurate. Like, yeah. like as if, yeah, yeah. I'm 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 here. I'm sorry. I was uh, changing hands. Uh, okay. Uh, okay. The, the, yeah. The uh, that that's not entirely. There were there were a few comments. They were uh, addressed, but they were not. None of the comments that were supplied were were substantive comments. Okay. Okay. Very good. Let's go over to Doctor Wow and get a final word in with him. <laughs> Hi, Joe. Yeah, I listened very carefully, and I have several comments. Uh, Most of them go along with what you said and what Cliff said and what Pete said. And let me start, try to see uh, uh, how we do that from uh, uh, the beginning. And one of the first uh, questions I wrote down for Millie is, okay, We have a public review. I have no problem with that whatsoever. And the first question is, uh, I don't need five pages to point to somebody out uh, that there is a grammatical error. Uh, You made a semicolon. I think a period would be better in a new sentence. Uh, That is one of the uh, uh, questions I have. The next thing is, who is the referee? It's... When the comments come back after public review, it's the same committee which put it out. Are they the refs, or is there an independent review? Let's stop there right now. All right. Let me ask that. If, as I understand it, correct me if I'm wrong, if the commenter is not happy with the response from the committee and the, the consensus body, they do have the option of appealing to ANSI? Um, yes. Um, so an independent review is not part of the ANSI process, and therefore ICRC does not have that in our standards development process. Um, but the, when a public review commenter submits a comment, receives his response, if he or she is unhappy, then he is um, termed an unresolved objector, or an objector, basically someone who has a concern, um, and we would typically, you know, communicate back and forth for a while to see if we can 
address his concerns better and make any changes. And if that's not the case, then um, that person would be given the right to appeal, uh, which basically outlines the whole appeals process that we have. And, you know, they can follow that. And it's a multi-step process multi-level process, so the first level of an uh, appeal would be at the IICRC level, um, and then it would be taken up to ANSI, and within ANSI there are two or three um, levels of appeals, it's kind of, you know, like up to the Supreme Court kind of thing. Um, Mm -hmm. And so that mechanism is there, and that is the ANSI process that we follow, um, and it usually ensures that a consensus body takes the time to be careful and, um, you know, uh, to basically accommodate uh, comments if they have merit. Does that answer your question? Yes, it does answer the question. And uh, uh, that is a good process. I like the levels over there, that's for sure. And we have a precedent somewhere. It's called the Administrative Procedures Act, which tells our boys and girls in uh, in Washington how they are allowed to make laws which is pretty much the same uh, process. It has to be uh, published in the Federal Register. There's public right. comment and so on and so on. And I think that is a, that is a good way. It's expensive, but uh, what the heck, it's better than uh, uh, somebody telling me. I agree also with Cliff. And I said, guys, and I know I said that before, guys, we gotta we got to be careful when we are asking for rigid regulations. And he said, well, yeah, we talked about there are 100 linear feet, and I did a job based on my professional opinion, and I did it with the right ventilation, the right amount of air handlers, and so on. And but you didn't do that 55-yard uh, or 55-feet thing over. You overlooked that. That almost reminds me, I may have said that also. If not, I say it again. Uh, we have the Pennsylvania Motor Vehicle Code, which tells, no doubt about it, open containers which contained alcoholic uh, beverages are not allowed in the car. Now, I think I'm going to break uh, the law once in a while. I have a, a carton or a, a, a bag full of empty beer cans or empty beer bottles, which I put in a dumpster where they are recycling it. I probably could get a ticket for doing that. If I were to throw them out the window, uh, you know, I get a, uh, a fine for littering. If I'm getting caught with one, in fact, the other day that happened, the container fell over one of the empty bottles, uh, rolled under the, uh, not the driver's seat, the passenger seat, there was an empty bottle in there. I didn't put it there. I didn't drink that bottle in my car. But <laughs> Cliff pointed that out. He said, guys, I have been doing that for quite some time, and I am allowed for a professional uh, opinion. Howie said the same thing. I said, look, I did this for years and years and years. I know what I'm doing. I know what I did 40 years ago and 30 years ago and 20 years ago. I'm going through the pro, uh, same procedure. I am not a certified industrial hygienist anymore. I turned in for several reasons, some of which were political. I said, look, fellows, you need me. I don't need you. Does that mean that 40 years ago when I was a CIH, when I was a young CIH, that I didn't know what the hell I was doing or what I'm doing now and what I'll be doing in 10 years? 
if I survive that. Uh, okay, I looked at the professional opinion over here. That you can't be too specific. It's almost like saying a house is allowed to be 45 feet wide. Now it's after it's all said and done. It's 45 feet and one inch. Now we get a yellow machine in and rip down the whole thing until it's exactly 45. It doesn't make sense to me. There's Howie at Miller Um and I also agree uh, with Pete uh, yeah, that we need, that we got to watch out who is watching us. Otherwise, I can save a lot of money uh, when there is a plaintiff and a defendant. We only need one lawyer who knows the law, and he represents the plaintiff and the defendant, right? Uh, <laughs> that saves 50% of the legal cost, tongue-in-cheek. Uh, so I'm I'm open for uh, uh, backfire. Well, I'm I'm not going to fire too too hard at you. Um, I think that I agree with some point of clarity that I would like to go. The deed of fire calculations, as well as the air mover calculations, are not part of the standard of care. They are not should. What is a should is that you have to have a method that is confident and 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 based to have basis and the calculations that are cited within the the document are are recommended based on practices or based on IIC or C coursework but they're but they're not well I heard I heard part of it and I do agree with Howie 100%. There ought to be a couple of very basic rules and regulations that we ought to obey when we are doing this or that and the other. I do agree that we drive on the right side uh, uh, of the roads in the United States and we pass on the left. I have no problem with that whatsoever. And if I drive on the left and I have an accident, I'm guilty and there are no ifs and buts about it. And this whole thing will change when I go to either England or Australia, but that is another question altogether. <laughs> or the sidewalks in Jamaica. Sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, Dieter, thank you so much for joining us as always. I also want to thank uh, Howard Wolf and Millie Washington. Great job. Um, we'll, we'll get you back with some uh, less technical difficulties, Howard, and, and, and talk a little bit about um, this as it goes on. It's not, you know, we're, we're still ways away from. Uh, before it even comes back out for review again, and then um, we'll definitely have to get you back and, and Millie, and love to talk to you about that third party administrator as well. But thanks for joining us this week. Thanks, guys. You're welcome. Thank you. Right. Thank you, Millie. Okay. Of course, I want to thank mm, you. Bye bye to everybody. Take care, Dieter. Uh, Cliff, thanks again. As always, great job on the uh, unfortunate obituary you had to do there at halftime. Uh, local guy, great guy, as I understand it. I can't say no personally, but I know his son. Um, and it's it's just a shame. And I think you've set it up really well. Uh, this is the business we've chosen. Um, you know, my son does construction. He, you know, I'm worried about him every day when he's out there. And, you know, you and I, quality world buildings as well, Cliff, and it just makes you think, and I know uh made John Lapotera think because uh, John was on the call and Lydia went through a, uh, a ceiling not long ago and she's doing very well, but um, we all need to be careful and think about what we're doing when we're out there in the field because uh, these things do happen. 
Um, also want to thank uh, Pete Consigli, the watchdog. Thanks for joining us, Pete. Cliff, any final comments? Well, Joe, it looked like, you know, if you look, uh, with a number of text messages that came in, I think people were going to, uh, you know, we'll, this will probably be one of our most listened to shows, and, uh, you know, we should just set one up in the future and do it again. Let's do that. All yeah, right. well, my, one of my favorite movies is uh, Casablanca, uh, when Humphrey Borgert said, I'm an innkeeper, I'm the the boss of the gin joint over here, I paraphrase him, and I said, that is my job. I've chosen that job. We don't do, I can't solve political problems over here. Right. Well, you have to see Casablanca to see what I mean. <laughs> Dear, thanks as always. I'll talk to you soon. This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to our guest. Of course, thanks to Jessica Lawson. I mean, we did it, Jess. No, no glitches. Uh, we're, we're looking good. Of course, I uh, want to thank our group of loyal listeners out there. We'll be back. Actually, we're going to take next Friday off. Uh, I'll be away at the IAQA conference, and then when we get back the following week, we'll uh, get with you on some uh, highlights from that conference. But uh, we look forward to everybody joining us back here again in two Fridays from now for the next episode of IAQ Radio. Uh-huh.